This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to our three in the Freedom Hut today. We are joined by Derek Scissors. He is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's an Asia economist and trade expert. Derek, thank you very much for calling. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I know you've got a piece here on the Trans-Pacific Partnership at AEI.org, grading the Trans-Pacific Partnership on trade. TPP is something that a lot of folks talk about, and Trump yesterday had the largely symbolic gesture of withdrawing the U.S. from it, even though it wasn't right, wasn't going to go through the Congress. You say TPP is not so great. Can you walk us through just if somebody has just heard this talked about but doesn't know anything about it, what do they need to know about TPP? What should the average American just know about this if we're out and voting and talking about it? Okay, well, let, let me just clarify my position. I originally said TPP was not so great when the treaty text first came out in November 2015. So this isn't about Trump or the election or anything else. It was just me reading the agreement. And my view of the agreement is, look, all these people saying it'll promote closer relations between the U.S. and Japan, they're our ally. That's true. There are a lot of diplomatic stories you could tell. The U.S. should have presence in Asia. Also true. I grant them all. But if you want a trade agreement to bring economic benefits to the United States, which is what I want, it doesn't do it. It doesn't hurt the United States. I disagree with President Trump when he says, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. It's going to be terrible. And as you said, it's not going to go into effect. What I didn't like in the agreement was I want to see in this agreement where we're going to get clear economic benefits, not diplomatic benefits, economic benefits. I didn't see it. What what would it have done? What are the main areas it touches on? What Because now I think it's become an article of faith, especially for a lot of Trump supporters. And I see your analysis here. This is from December of 2015. You just when I grading the Trans-Pacific Partnership on trade is you just saying this is what I think of the deal, regardless of a Trump presidency or not. But what was this going to do? The Obama administration was pushing for it. Hillary was, I think, for it and then against it. Uh, what was this supposed to, what areas rather was this hitting on? Well, it was mostly about setting rules for other countries. We weren't going to change that much. I and mean, one of the things that, that is a key factor in, in debates over trade is the U.S. is already open. Most of our trade agreements don't change our rules. They change other people's rules. So if you're talking about impact on ordinary Americans' lives, I would, I would basically say nothing. No one would have noticed, which would have been a, you know, a big anticlimax if it ever went into effect. The idea was to get other countries to open more to trade, including trade from American companies and workers. The problem was there were so many exceptions that I didn't think that they opened. But if you talked about how the TPP would have affected normal people, it really wouldn't have affected normal people at all. 
So what was the Obama administration doing pushing for this thing? What was what was their what's their side of it? What do they think this would accomplish? Well, they're going to partly disagree with me, but if you had, without listening to me, criticize them, if you had an Obama administration official, former official, show up, they would not start with economics. They would not start with trade benefits for ordinary Americans. They would start with, this is part of our pivot to Asia. You know, we don't want to be obsessed with the Middle East. We want to focus on Asia. Asia has the majority of the world's people. It's got a lot of fast-growing economies. It's part of our pivot to Asia. We, you know, and they would tell you a lot of things that are true. They're not about economics. Then they would say there are 18,000 tariff cuts uh, in the uh, in the TPP, and a tariff is just a tax. So they're telling you, look, basically we're cutting your taxes. And again, that's true, but U.S. tariffs are really low. So they're talking about cutting the tariff from 2% to 1%. And you're just, and you know, that's not going to show up at the final value. Only part of that's going to show up in the final value of whatever you're buying. So again, you're not going to notice. They would talk about this, the Obama administration were talking about it, they talk about it as a very important diplomatic agreement. And I don't disagree with that. I just want our trade agreements to have economic benefits. And it's not just me. Six months later, the International Trade Commission, which is a, an independent body in the federal government, evaluated the Trans-Pacific Partnership and said, I, you know, we don't really see anything here. Is a lot of the opposition to TPP then, is it fair to say that it's really just tied in with the uh, surging uh, nationalism around the world and, and it's a, a rejection of internationalism and globalism more than, I'm not saying your criticisms of it, I'm saying the general uh, opinion against it seems to be motivated to me more by the sense that we shouldn't be in these massive globalist alliances or globalist entanglements rather than any specific economic issues or, or are there specific economic issues that the opposition especially this the the trump supporter opposition points to in this well, I, you know, I followed what the president said when he was on the campaign trail about TPP a lot. It was very general. Um, so my answer to your question is, even though I said I don't like the agreement, I don't see what it does for us, I don't see any disaster coming from the agreement. I think the answer to your question is it's really about past deals. And really the number one deal we're talking about here is letting China into the WTO. Because if you look at when China gets into the WTO, that coincides with very sharp drops in American manufacturing employment. Now, it's not all due to China. I don't want to exaggerate, but people are going to remember that time. China gets on the W2, 2001. They're going to remember that time, and, and they're going to trace that back in part, and they'll be right to trade, that we let China in the WTO under what turned out to be bad terms. It hurt a lot of manufacturing uh, workers and their families, and now we have somebody telling us this agreement is much better than that, and they're just, they don't trust that. The last really big agreement we had didn't work out well at all for a lot of Americans. And so when someone comes along and says, here's another agreement, and you say, well, what are the concrete economic benefits? And they start talking about diplomacy. There's a lack of trust there. And I think that's what President Trump tapped into when he was running for office. Are you, are you referring to NAFTA? I mean, NAFTA is a question I wanted to ask you about anyway. No, I'm, I'm referring to China entering the World Trade Organization, which happened at the end of 2001. And I'll contrast it with NAFTA. Um, First of all, China is much bigger than Mexico. Uh, it's much bigger in population, much bigger in number of workers, it's much bigger in economic size. It's much bigger. It's also better organized than Mexico, which increases its weight. NAFTA goes into the effect beginning of 1994. Manufacturing employment actually rises in 94, 95, 96, 97, and 98. Manufacturing wages rise all those years. Labor force participation rises all those years. I think a lot of people who are angry at NAFTA are actually angry at China. And they, they, they're getting confused about 
and I don't mean people who are directly affected, they know when they were affected, but they're getting confused about when the, the economy seemed to turn against manufacturing and turn against blue-collar workers and turn against manufacturing states. Because if you look at the 90s, the 90s were, were good. That's, Bill Clinton wasn't popular as president because he was a good guy, if I may say so. He was popular as president because we had a strong economy. The economy gets much it has much more on the way of trouble when China enters in the WTO, which is about six years after NAFTA. So uh, the idea of it's trade... It's fascinating. I think you're totally right, by the way. People do conflate these things. Most mm-hmm. folks don't have the time to read in depth into right. the agreements and look at the charts, and that's I know that that is what you're doing. What is the, the pro... What is, right now, what is the pro-NAFTA case? What is the con? How, how does this really line up now that we've had this agreement in effect for, for years? Well, I mean, Mexico's not big enough to change what goes on here for very long. So the pro-NAFTA case is you don't have any evidence that jobs were lost nationally, even in manufacturing. Forget other jobs, because manufacturing wages and employment both went up after NAFTA for five years. Now, after that, China comes into play, and you can't tell what's going on with NAFTA anymore because China's so much bigger that it wipes out all the NAFTA effects. The, the, I think the case where people want to be critical of NAFTA, and, and it can be productive, is to say, look, it's 20 years out of date. You know, we made that agreement 22 years ago. We didn't even have e-commerce back then. Now we do, and America's really good at it. Let's upgrade the agreement. Let's make it a better agreement, and let's negotiate for, for things that are going to help uh, Americans. So there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to renegotiate NAFTA. I'm, I'm, I would like to renegotiate NAFTA, too. We can mess it up, but, but I think it's a good idea to renegotiate it. What's wrong is thinking back to the 90s and thinking that American manufacturing was, was hurting that. It wasn't. That was a good time for American manufacturing. It got much worse after that. What is true and what is not when Trump starts talking about getting uh, or negotiating better deals with China because, you know, he says their leaders are smarter than us and they're they're doing all this stuff that that hurts us. If if you were playing the role of uh, of of Trump economic translator, what is he saying that resonates and what is kind of just hogwash to get people riled up when it comes to U.S. trade with China? Well, what resonates is we do have leverage. That's the thing he started saying early on where no one was paying that much attention to him. And I said, well, he's right about that. Um, the main way we have leverage is China makes a lot of money off the United States. It doesn't, as the president says, we gave them the money. We don't give them the money. We give them the money. We get something in return. We buy goods made in China. They get the money. They need that money. Um, a lot of money is leaving China because people don't want to do business there anymore. It's something that most Americans don't know. Um, so money is leaving China, and without the money they get from the U.S. Uh, in terms of trade, they'd have a serious financial problem. So we do have leverage. The president is right about that. Where he's wrong is that it seems like sometimes he's living in the past. You know, most people think that China was manipulating its currency 10 years ago much more than they are now. In other words, that's, that's a kind of an old issue. China, even China joining the WTO, I said it was very important back then, but you can't turn back the hands of time. You got to deal with what's going on now. So we do have leverage. We got to focus on what matters now. And I think the president is right about the leverage and not as right about what the main issues are. What are the main issues? Well, for me, there are two issues, which, which have been mentioned by the Trump campaign. They're just not emphasized as much as some other things. Um, this is going to sound like I'm, I'm talking about tech companies. I'm not. China steals American intellectual property on a, on a massive basis. 
And when you do an estimate of how many Americans have jobs that are supported by innovation, it's like 35 million. It's an enormous figure. So we're not talking about just advanced technology. We're talking about any innovation you have to make your company work better. It could be something somebody came up with there in garage. If it's valuable, the Chinese will try to steal it. Um, and so I think that's something where we can retaliate against China's intellectual property theft and say, if you're if you're good on this issue, we'll trade with you, we'll invest with you. If you're not, you can't do business here. We should have done this years ago. We haven't. And I'm hoping that a Trump administration will do that. The other issue is harder. We like to have an open economy here. We like to have competition. At least we have um, since World War II. Um, because we think competition is good for consumers and is good for the country. China doesn't like that. So we're, we're automatically playing in di- different games. They want to come here and compete freely with our firms. They don't want us to go there and compete freely with theirs. And that's really a tough one to deal with because I don't want to become like China in order to punish China. But it's hard to know how to punish them because they're, they are being unfair without becoming like them. How does Trump succeed in bringing manufacturing jobs back or rather just uh, creating an environment where private sector manufacturing can thrive more, uh, more, you know, thrive more efficiently in this country. What are things that can be? What is realistic? What what do you think could happen? Can he make the automotive companies start manufacturing in large numbers here again? What's real and what's not there? I, you know, the way to proceed is not to try to go company by company every time they make a decision. I, you know, I get the point of saying I, the president, the new president, the guy who just got elected, is taken office, doesn't want you sending your jobs overseas. So you do that a couple of times, it's fine, but that's not going to change national manufacturing. It's not going to bring back two million American jobs in manufacturing. The way to do that, the number one way to do that is tax reform. We do not have a good corporate tax system. The taxes are too high. We have weird deductions that people shouldn't take. Um, we encourage and essentially encourage money to go overseas when we should be encouraging it to come here. So the the administration has a tax reform proposal. Uh, Speaker Ryan and the House Republican leadership has a tax reform proposal. There are probably some others there. Those are the two main ones. If we can get together and, and have a pro-jobs tax reform, meaning we want to create jobs and increase wages with our tax reform, there are other things people want to do with tax reform. The number one goal should be creating jobs and increasing wages because there's so many jobs created that wages have to go up. We can do that. It's possible. It's on the table. The government is able to do that. So to me, the number one thing to judge President Trump will be is, is are you going to pass a tax reform package, and is it pro-jobs? All right. Uh, well, we'll see if he manages to do it. Derek Scissors, resident scholar at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute. He's an Asia economist and trade expert. Uh, Derek, really appreciate you joining today. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Uh, team, we're going to hit a break, and we will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645.
This is the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, fake news. I got some fake news for you. I got your fake news right here. Scientists warn again. This is according to Time Magazine. Oh, Time, the same Time Magazine that had the guy who said the Martin Luther King bust was taken from the Oval Office because he didn't see it, but it was there. That same Time Magazine. I think it's competing with Rolling Stone for most laughable and least trustworthy news source. That's still considered a trustworthy news source by some. Uh, they have this piece out there that I'm, I mean, it's not really fake news, but I'm saying it's fake news. So I guess I'm faking fake news. So sue me. Scientists warn again, French fries may increase the risk of cancer. You know, for people who like to write about things that involve science and to promote the idea that they're so into the science, the quote, may increase risk of cancer, end quote, headline needs to be used much more sparingly. If you type that into Google, you start looking around, may increase uh, risk of cancer, you will soon find that everything pretty much causes cancer. Nitrates in food causes cancer. Bacon causes cancer. Uh, I'm sure, you know, somebody says dairy causes cancer. Stress causes cancer. Although that one I actually believe. I think stress plays a much larger role in our health than anybody realizes. But there's just all the, so much stuff causes cancer. You know, what is it? Uh, different sweeteners cause cancer. Everything causes cancer. So if everything causes cancer, it's not particularly helpful to tell us all that it causes cancer, right? We we can agree on that. If if breathing causes cancer, well, well, you know, so what? What are you going to do? But that French fries would increase the risk of cancer. This just goes too far. Of the food weaknesses that I have. And you know, I'm a celiac, I've told you before, so that cuts out a lot of breads and pastries. Uh, but of the food weaknesses that I'm still able to have, French fries is top of the list. When you are really hungry and you get your hands on some really good French fries, uh, it's one of the better things that, it's one of the better memories, one of the better feelings in life. <laughs> French fries are the best. I go, I go with all different kinds. Of, I like French fries with aioli, not just with ketchup. I like French fries with aioli. I even go French fries with mayo. That's right, I said it. A little European for you, yes? You like the French fries with the mayo, like Belgium and uh, like France. Uh, yeah, don't knock it. To, that is a don't knock until you try it situation. A really crisp, perfectly done French fry with a little little dab of mayo on the, on the end. Even better to go with a, a bit of a flavored aioli of some sort. Absolutely delicious. But I just don't like, I don't like seeing this libel of french fries saying that it increases here's what they're here's the uh, the theory acrylamide ac, uh, wait acrylamide acrylamide i guess is how you say it a substance produced when starchy foods are heated at high temperatures has been linked to cancer in animals and this is the, uh, the uk organization the uk foods standards agency oh hello we'll go work for the food standards agency and make sure you know our foods a bit fattening and unhealthy for you and, you know, not much taste because we're British. Yeah, that's right. Deal with it. So the FSA suggests that people cook food at lower temperatures because at high temperatures, starchy foods produce uh, acrylamide, uh, which is the golden color you get or crispy brown color you get on French fries. So I'm assuming 
this horrible scientific analysis also then extends to hash browns to any number of starchy foods that to uh, uh what's the what's the thing that uh, in like cuban food that people uh eat the start i'm forgetting what it's called right now but it's uh, pl- uh not plantains yuca when i go get my fried yuca they're probably telling me that i'm cancerizing myself this is just and there's a, a campaign underway in the uk to publicize this now that you shouldn't eat you shouldn't eat golden brown or browned foods because it causes cancer. You know what? We all take risks in life. And the risks that I take when I eat a perfectly golden brown French fry that's still got almost a little bit of sizzle to it when it's still piping hot and I put a little aioli on it, that's a risk that I'm just willing to take, my friends. There are some risks that we should all just, with open eyes, embrace. French fries, one of them. All right, Spicer, the press, the fight. We got that and more coming up. A few minutes. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, welcome back. Good to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. So there are some stories that uh, I've seen. I, I brought them up earlier in the show, but I'm not, I can't say whether or not they are true. Um, that the Trump White House at the top level is in disarray and there are Rumors about Sean Spicer being replaced. The guy's been press secretary for days. He's going to be replaced. This is like lasting about as long as Alec Baldwin had a show on MSNBC. So if you don't remember that, it's worth going back and checking. That was the fastest, the fastest launch and unlaunch of a TV news show that I can remember. Uh, but Spicer you know, went went on and, and did that whole thing about the numbers for the inauguration. And because I, I keep it real, I told you it was weird. It wasn't good. I'm not sitting, I'm not going to sit here, and I know you know this, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, Trump, everything Trump does is great. No, and there's some, and you should have somebody, it's the biggest ever, period. He was, he sounded just petulant and freaking out. It wasn't good. Yesterday, it was almost Castro-like in length. It was as though we were listening to Castro enter hour eight about the sugar harvest. Uh, it was 80 minutes long. It was a really long White House press conference. And I had to watch the whole thing on set at Fox. And it meant that I didn't get to do the show. So that was pretty annoying because they figured it would go for like 30 or 40 minutes. Nobody thought it would go for 80 minutes. It was really long. But I will say that uh, Spicer had it was really it was towards the end that he hit a groove and started to make the central case of the administration's fight with the media and i don't think it's one that they should shy away from i i believe it to be a very real and they don't always take the right approach but i do think they should fight on this and it was where spicer <laughs> it's where spicer got his groove back but, you know, he did sort of get into his uh, into his zone 
And I wanted to play the audio from it because it was an important. He got into some important stuff. Please play Spicer from yesterday. First White House press conference of the administration. Go. It's an overall frustration when you open when you turn on the television over and over again and get told that there's this narrative that you didn't win, you weren't going to run, you can't pick up this state. That's not you know that that's a fool's errand to go to Pennsylvania. Why is he in Michigan? How silly. They'll never vote for him. A Republican hasn't won that state since '88. And then he goes and he does it. And then what's the next narrative? Well. It must have been because of this. He didn't win that. And then, oh, people aren't attending your thing. Or John Lewis is is the first person to skip his inauguration. Not true. And over and over again, the MLK bust. I think over and over again, there's this constant attempt to undermine his credibility and the movement that he represents. And it's frustrating for not just him, but I think so many of us that are trying to work to get this message out. And it, it is frustrating. I am sure I believe that they are uh, frustrated on this because they should be, because all along this has been true. This has been the case. The media has been absolutely, positively dead set against the administration. If you had to pick the special sauce, like for the French fries, no, but if you had to pick the secret weapon that the Trump administration has had all along it's almost a paradox the media's hatred of trump has been one of the greatest assets and greatest hindrances for the administration i think mostly an asset uh, because the people who don't believe and don't like the administration uh the people who are not in favor of the administration are just going to go along with all of this stuff anyway they want to see anything that is damaging to trump And on the other side of this, those of us who know the media lies and knows the media is biased see these assaults just piled on to Trump, piled on to Trump, unceasing and oftentimes inaccurate, and find ourselves wanting to, uh, to say to them, you know, this is just too much. As I've said to you before, I feel like I'm increasingly in the bunker or or, or in the trench alongside the Trump administration, not because it's like, oh, this is the easier place to be now, because I think actually a lot of uh, conservatives have chosen a third way path of I'm going to just criticize. I'm going to I can't stand Trump. I'm going to criticize Trump and going to criticize the media. But we also need to be on guard for the perhaps unintentional but very real dynamic of conservatism that does the work of the left without intending to. And this is a de- this is a delicate balance. And I know you get into some sensitive areas here because there are constitutionalists and conservatives who just cannot stomach them cannot stomach the idea of backing the Trump administration or finding themselves shoulder to shoulder with it even on issues where Trump is right. And I like to see more of I'd like to see that switch happening a little more uh, aggressively than it is, uh, quickly than it is, because this is uh, this is unprecedented. Those who are saying that the media's hatred for Trump outstrips anything like this in in history, I think that is absolutely true. I believe that to be the case, and that means that someone like Sean Spicer getting up there. He's got to be on his game. And he was on the weekend. I know they're saying that Trump. Pu- this is the question. Did Trump push him out there to say this stuff or not? Seems like because when he was off the cuff yesterday, 
and I had to watch the whole press conference. When he was off the cuff yesterday, he was pretty good. Did a pretty good job. But that written statement, it was the biggest inauguration ever, period, was playing right into the media game of these are clowns. They don't know what they're doing. They're petty. And so is Spicer the fall guy for that? Maybe they're floating out there that they're thinking about replacing him just to make it seem like that was a Spicer mistake and not a Trump mistake. So Spicer is metaphorically falling on his sword with that one or being being told to fall on his sword for that one. But they're not going to replace him. We'll see. There's also some rumors. This is one of the things that whenever you go on TV, uh, you you just you want to keep it really simple. I've had to learn. I've learned this many times in many ways. You want to keep it simple with what you wear because, the you know, everyone's a critic, man. I mean. If your tie isn't perfectly straight, if your if your suit looks a little tattered, if your shirt collar comes up over your suit, which is a really easy thing to happen, especially people don't understand that sometimes you're you're going to be moving your head side to side and you don't know that because you're going to be talking to people to your left and to your right, and when you move around, your shirt collar comes up, and then you come offset, and all you hear from everybody is oh, "stupid idiot with your stupid shirt collar." <laughs> that's that's what they say to you. Your dumb face, your dumb shirt collar, your stupid tie, and your stupid face. And this is the, the thank you, Twitter and Facebook. This is the this is the sort of uh, very valuable critique you get from the television news watching audience, particularly at CNN. Uh, so you want to you want to make sure you know what it's going to look like before you go on. And one of the things I think is funny is there's a there's at least a rumor that Trump is angry because Spicer wears light these light colored suits, <laughs> and the, I think the Post described it as an ill fitting suit. And Trump expects you know things to look crisp, and so that's one of the criticisms. And I feel bad for Spicer that one. I'm like, oh come on, that guy's wearing kind of a light gray suit. It's not a you know MBD. He shouldn't shouldn't be held to some unreasonable standard on that one. Um, so yeah, uh, I I think that Spicer gave a gave a good presser yesterday. I'm trying to think of some of the key points. That was the best part of it was when he got into the war with the media and the siege mentality that the Trump administration has, which is warranted. I don't always think that they deal with it in the best fashion, but there's no question in my mind that they need to understand this is not about reportage. This is not about bringing facts to light and accountability, journalists holding power accountable. This is a concerted effort to destroy, and it is well underway it's been underway even from before the occupant of the white house was donald trump his family and the administration it has filtered down across and throughout the culture of this country obviously not for trump supporters but in hollywood i mentioned that snl issue and you know snl by the way that tweet was yeah of course the tweets really out of bounds out of line and, and gross and the young woman's being punished for it and as i said you know, i'm a big i'm a big second chance person especially for stream of consciousness tw- twitter or facebook or you know people deserve a second chance when they cross the, even 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 when they really do cross the line uh that all said snl has been incapable of mocking democrats for as long as i've been watching snl I mean, the last time snl was funny dana carvey and mike myers were regular uh, regular players in it. That was when SNL, the last time that I can remember that it was, it was actually a funny show. Hasn't been funny since then. Uh, so the, the broader culture has also been anti-Republican and then much more focused and virulently anti-Trump. And they understand this and they're rolling up their sleeves to throw down. There are going to be missteps with that too. No one's ever done this before. There's no playbook for 
a White House that goes to war with the media. There's no playbook for it. And I, I do think it is it is warranted to take an aggressive stance. I do like that they punch back against much of what is is reported that is clearly material out of a, oh, you could even say out of a dossier of sorts, meant to chip away at the foundations of the Trump administration. And if they have to chip away at the foundations of our government and of our system in this republic, they'll do that too. They'll undermine anything to get to Trump. Nothing is sacred when it comes to destroying the Trump administration. Nothing will get in their way. Very interesting, you'll notice, that the Constitution has been cited recently by a lot of liberals, a lot of Democrats, as a means of trying to restrain Trump. But I wonder what's going to happen in the future when they view the Constitution perhaps as on Trump's side. You know, they're just going to say, oh, well, he doesn't have that authority or power. We should drag him into court or he should be impeached. Nothing is sacred to them. The only thing that is sacred is the pursuit of power. Trump stands in the way of that, and therefore they will destroy him however they can. Um, team, I'm going to hit a break here. We'll be back on the flip side. Stay with me. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So there was a DNC chair candidates forum last night. Just kidding, because we're about to talk about it, so it can't be that boring, right? It's a little boring. Uh, This was hosted by MSNBC's Joy Reid and Sally Boynton Brown, executive director of the Idaho Democratic Party, Noted that Black Lives Matter, and this all courtesy of Mediaite, hattipmediaite.com, and made it, and it made her sad that white leaders in our party have failed. And then she went on to say some pretty interesting stuff. Please play it. I'm a white woman. I don't get it. I am pleased and honored to be here today to have the conversation. I am so excited that we're here. And I am listening because that's my job. My job is to listen to the issues. My job is to listen and be a voice. And my job is to shut other white people down when they want to interrupt. My job is to shut other white people down when they want to say, oh, no, I'm not prejudiced. I'm a Democrat. I'm accepting. My job is to make sure that they get that they have privilege. And until we shut our mouths. And we listen to those people who don't. And we lift our people up so that we all have equity in this country, so that we are all fighting alongside each other, so that we are all on the same page. And we clearly get where we're going. We're not going to break through this. This is not just rhetoric. This is life or death. This moment in our country, the Democratic Party has the opportunity to do something different. We have the opportunity to really confront the fact that we have not been in alignment with our values. We've been talking a lot of smack. We uh, need to okay, make okay, sure enough, that our enough, actions enough, and our- enough. Please, 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 please. I can't, I can't take it anymore. What a lunatic. The authoritarianism 
that is just dripping from her uh, her little speech there. Her her job. This is she reminds me of one of these kids that you you see trotted out in North Korea, and you have to read the translation, and they're just talking about the dear leader, and we cannot love the dear leader enough, and the dear leader gives me everything, and anyone against the dear leader must be destroyed because oh my god, the dear leader is everything to me, and I love the dear leader so much, I love the dear leader more than you. It's just the programming of the brain that has been done, and with her, the the white privilege programming. My job as a white Democrat is to shut down other white Democrats who think they're not to shut other white people down when they want to interrupt. So she's promising to be an ally of those the Democratic Party. She's promising to use her whiteness to shut down those who do not accept that their whiteness is a problem. This is mind blowing. And you hear the way too the conviction with which she says this utter nonsense, just spewing this bile, this crap, this vacuous garbage out there. And a lot of Democrats, white and non-white, all together, would applaud this kind of stuff. They would say, oh, absolutely. We need somebody. We need a white person to regulate among other white people, to make sure that they are willing to cite their white privilege and not allow their whiteness to overtake their thinking and let them interrupt people when they're getting white privilege lectures. There are really crazy people who are very powerful in the Democratic Party, and we need to point that out. Oh, team, I'm not in for Rush Wednesday. I'm in for Rush this coming Friday. Wanted to point that out on the EIB. Until tomorrow, I'll be here. As always, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.